Welcome to the Creatives with AI podcast. I'm your host, David, and this is a show where we share insights about the future of artificial intelligence and how it will affect the lives of people working in the creative industries. On today's show, we chat with Joop Mindestrama, founder of Pause AI. In our wide-ranging conversation, we delve deep into the profound impact of AI on society, discussing the alignment problem where AI may not align with human intentions and how that may pose existential risks. Yoop stresses the urgency of control, discussing the potential misuse of AI, drawing parallels to historical events like the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings. We critically examine the role of media in shaping public perceptions about AI, critiquing its portrayal in sci-fi movies and its dismissive stance on the inherent risks of AI. The discussion also explores AI's economic opportunities and the pressing need for regulation. We end with a discussion on the potential superiority of AI over humans, calling for global governance to protect humanity. Yup is a software entrepreneur and database programmer who's become an activist. He founded Pause AI and has since organized protests, spoken with politicians, and has been published in Time, Wired, Euronews, and Politico, among several other international publications, highlighting the risks of AI to anyone who will listen. Links to Yup's profile and social media will be in the show notes on our website at creativeswith.ai. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this concerning conversation with Yoop. Yoop, welcome to the podcast today. Thanks for having me, David. Yeah, thanks for coming. Obviously, we we sort of, well, I found you through some of the articles that you've been in in Wired. I think Wired Magazine was the one that initially I, I noticed and just reached out to you through LinkedIn because obviously, I, you know, this podcast is is a lot about how AI is going to be you know, how it's going to impact the creative industries. And a lot of the people that I have on are glass half full types. So a lot of people are very optimistic about it. And I did want to have someone on who has a slightly different viewpoint. And I thought, since you seem to be leading the fight at the minute, I thought, well, you know, who would be a better person to talk to than you? Oh man, I already feel guilty for bringing down people's optimism a little. No, 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 it's fine. That, like no one's ever going to agree on anything, right? So, you know, there's always going to be different points of view and I think it I do think it's important to have both sides of and to hear both sides of the argument. So, I'm quite interested, you know, I've had a look at at your website and obviously we've had a we had about an hour long chat I think before um mm-hmm. just in the in the intro call. So, before we get into to sort of your background and stuff, I do like to ask everybody genuinely how are you doing? I'm actually doing pretty well right now. So the past few months have been a little anxiety ridden and a little sad, to be honest, when, you know, the reality kind of sunk in that this, this AI problem is, is quite serious, but there's this interesting psychological phenomenon, the hedonic treadmill. And it happens that even after going through like a painful grief process at a certain point in time, you start feeling better. And I think that's, that's happening like in the last month. So I'm actually back to my original, you know, 7.5, 8 state of state of mind. So yeah, pretty good actually. Oh, that's that's excellent. It's um yeah, I imagine in the beginning, particularly and I don't know, maybe we can talk about this a little bit later, but when you start to get some actual, you know, because like I said, you seem to be sort of leading the fight at the minute and you've had some really great coverage. You know, again, Wired Magazine, Time Magazine, I think you've been in Forbes. I've seen stuff all over the place. And and I imagine that that carries with it a little bit of anxiety and sort of, you know, you've got to make sure you're getting the word out in the right way. Building on that, maybe you could start off and I've done the intro with your sort of, you know, bio and stuff at the beginning, but maybe if you could tell everybody a little bit more about Pause AI, you know, what drove you to start that? Because I know you had a bit of anxiety around that as well. So, you know, now that you're feeling better, that might give a bit of context. So I've been reading about AI safety and the alignment problem for maybe like six or seven years now. And I've always played with the idea of doing a little bit more because the problem seems so extremely important. Sorry, I'm going to jump in already. (laughs) What's the alignment problem just for people listening who may not know what that is? So the alignment problem refers to the problem that when you make an artificial intelligence that is very smart, how do you get it to do what you want? Or more specifically, how do you prevent it from killing every single person on earth? And that problem is intuitively easy, 
to solve. I mean, you could say things like maybe you should shut off the computer, but it's technically very difficult. And many scientists have been working on this, not, not that many, but you know, hundreds for the past uh, 10, 20 years. Uh, and then they haven't made any real progress, so there's not a solution yet. And that's what makes the problem interesting because the consequence of you know, having a, a super intelligent system that goes haywire is basically horrible. So, it, so for years, I just felt like this problem is interesting and it deserves more attention, but I never really got to doing anything with it professionally or uh, anything serious. And then GPT-3 and ChatGPT happened and GPT-4 happened. And that was basically a wake-up call for me that the timelines that we've heard for you know, the past 10 years have been very much wrong. In 2020, the average estimate for an AI that was able to pass the SAT exams was 2055. GPT-4 passed that bar in April. So the reason I always felt like I'm not going to work in AI alignment was it's, it's just too far off into the future. And then GPT-4 happened and I'm like, oh shit, this could happen in the next few years or months maybe even. And it's, it's passed more than that now, hasn't it? It's passed the bar exam. It's passed all sorts of, all, all sorts yeah. of exams. It's got a verbal IQ of 155. It's absurd. Yeah. yeah. I think there's, I did read somewhere that there's one exam that it hasn't passed and I can't remember which one it was. Uh, it was remarkably bad at the English literature exam, AP, AP, AP literature, I think. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, you're right. But I'm pretty confident that at some point we'll have an AI that passes that one as well. Uh, and the implications of having a system that is, you know, very good at intellectual tasks across the board is actually uh, a really scary thing. So yeah, if, if it's okay with you, we could dive a little bit deeper into how AI can go wrong. Yeah, let's go. That's what we're here for. We can we can take as long as you like as well. Like I literally have nothing else to do for the rest of the day. So if you want to go for three hours, I can't believe I'm even saying this. But if you <laughs> want to go that long, you can. So let's oh, let's well, get that, into it. Let's, let's get, get into, into it. it. We'll see where it uh, where it takes us. So the, the the fundamental concept is intelligence, and there's many ways people can define intelligence. Uh, but one way that is very common in the AI scene is the degree in which a system is able to achieve arbitrary goals. So if a thing is very good at achieving goals, it's intelligent. For example, humans can point to the moon and humanity as a whole can then find a way to get there. And there's a difference between narrow intelligent systems and general intelligent systems. So there are AIs that are very good at facial recognition, for example. We call that narrow AIs. Other examples are, you know, a chess AI, for example. But artificial general intelligence is the thing that these AI companies are all trying to build. It's an AI that can do pretty much every task that a human does, and it can do it better than that. Now, GPT-4 isn't yet an artificial general intelligence, according to most definitions, but it's getting pretty close in many ways. And the reason why having a system that is very smart can be very dangerous is exactly because intelligence means it is able to achieve goals. And if we don't know exactly how we can give a machine the goal that we want it to have, what happens if it actually starts pursuing that goal relentlessly, right? So, for example, if we have a hypothetical super intelligent GPT-5 successor, right? We have some super intelligent language model and we give it the instruction to calculate pi. We give it resources to our own computer, like it can browse the web, stuff like that, and it can just calculate pi. What could happen is that it's, it starts to reason about strategies that will lead to the highest number of pi, the most accurate number. And for you know small numbers, uh, it will come up with pretty decent strategies like, okay, maybe just run the best algorithm for 10 seconds on your computer. And it then can come up with strategies like, well, maybe I should hire a data center and give them you know, $100 and get them to calculate pi for like a day or whatever. And as you get more extreme strategies, the end result gets higher. So the AI has like a better strategy because it, it, it achieves the goal in a more efficient or optimal way. But the results get really freaky. At some point, an AI may decide that it's a good idea to take over all the computers in the world. Or maybe it's going to build computer clusters somewhere else in the world. 
And the problem is that these types of behaviors are actually logical and quite, uh, quite common. So for virtually any goal that you can give a system, it is likely to have dangerous uh, sub-goals. We call this instrumental convergence. And for humans, instrumental convergence basically means that I don't know what your goals in life are, but if I give you a bag of money, I'm pretty confident that you will take it and you'll be happy with it, right? Because money is an instrumental goal. It is something that is useful to achieve your other goals. Maybe you want to become a famous football player and you want to hire the best coach. Money is nice. Maybe you want to cure cancer. Then you can use the money to uh, you know, hire a bunch of researchers. So money is an instrumental goal. And for an AI, some instrumental goals are don't be shut off because if someone turns you off, you can't achieve your original goal. Another goal is get as much compute as possible so you can improve yourself, so you can make, make better, better predictions about reality, you can come up with better strategies. A different goal is make sure that uh, humans can't interfere with your objective, right? They don't get turned off. So it's actually rational for most, most of these goals for a sufficiently smart AI to get rid of humans. And that's a very, very dark uh, conclusion. And when I realized that, you know, like six years ago, after you know, watching Robert Miles videos and reading some books, it just felt like a very, very distant future. And then we get GPT-4 and suddenly I can run this tool called AutoGPT on my own computer and I can actually see an AI reason on how it wants to take over the world. Now, Right now, GPT-4 is not smart enough to do that, right? It can't hack into other computers. It cannot convince me to do anything. It's just not smart enough. But the one metric that we're trying to advance as society or what these AI companies are trying to, to advance is intelligence. So it, it, it seems actually very likely that at some point, one of these companies is going to build an AI that if I run it in a similar context, and I instruct it to take over the world, or even if I instruct it to calculate pi, that it actually can. So let's not build the technology. Let's not do it. That's what the scientists are calling for with the pause letter. That's what we the pause AI been been calling for. Yeah, to me, it's just completely insane that we're on this path of building a technology that has a very high likelihood of killing every single person on Earth. Do you think that the genie's out of the bottle? I mean, that's obviously, you know, that's one of the arguments is, is that it's already too late. We're, we're already in a Cold War. And the chances of the West convincing, you know, the communist states or, or the East or whatever you want to call it to not pursue this in their own interest is futile at best. You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. I just wonder if, I just wonder if it's too late. So I think there are two things I want to say about this. Well, first, it's definitely not too late because AI still hasn't taken over yet. And it's something that we build, right? I mean, it's something that we actively do. It's not like a big meteor is coming and all we have to do is wait. We're actively currently pursuing this thing that could kill us. But uh, regarding the racing dynamics between different countries, at this point, China is actually the one that is explicitly mentioning a pause. So at the United Nations Security Council meeting, China was the only country that mentioned that a pause would be a good option to have. And it also makes sense for them, even from a, like a competitive type of perspective, because uh, you know the US is currently leading. They are the only, only country that has like these very, very capable large language models. But ultimately, this race is not an arms race, but it's a suicide race. Because the most likely outcome of having like a super intelligent AI is that everyone dies. And that is something that is in, you know, not, not in anybody's interest. So I think if enough people understand this problem, if enough, enough people understand the alignment problem and think this through enough, then we can realize as a society, as a planet, that this is a bad idea and we need to just not build it. The pause AI movement advocates, you know, to stop doing AI develop or, or to pause doing AI development at the minute where we are until certain conditions are met. What are the conditions that you think if we did meet those conditions that it would be okay to slowly then start to move forward again? I think there are two main conditions that are important. 
Uh, the first one is that there is a very strong consensus of AI safety uh, researchers that the alignment problem uh, the alignment problem has been solved. I'm personally not entirely sure whether it's even possible to solve the alignment problem. I also don't know, you know, what a solution might look like. But if if the scientists agree, if there's a strong consensus that it's been solved, that's condition number one. Condition number two is that we, as a globe, has have reached consensus on what should happen with it. Because a super intelligent system, once you turn it on and it starts to optimize for something, we can get all sorts of outcomes. But whatever it is that the super intelligence is trying to pursue, it will probably be exactly like that. And it will be very difficult to change it. So for example, if we create an AI that maximizes human happiness, it may conclude that it's the best strategy to you know, have like a bunch of floating brains in, in like silos that are just constantly being injected with some sort of drug. And I, I'm not sure if that's something that we want, but whatever the future is that we want as a society, this needs to be discussed in a democratic way. We can't leave it to like one tech CEO to build a super intelligence and you know, create his own Orwellian nightmare state or whatever. You, you can really think of a, a super intelligent system as a godlike AI, like an, uh, an evil genie that does exactly what you say. Like a perfectly aligned superintelligence will be probably something akin to that. And that's a superpower that you don't want anyone to have, preferably. But if it is to exist at some point, it should be under democratic control. So yeah, these two conditions. Solve the alignment problem, have it under democratic control. I think something that's interesting that crept up in that is the democratic control. Or it's like the ethics question, which is a very difficult one in my mind. Because... Whose ethics are we going to use, right? There are there are very wildly differing worldviews. How do you see that playing out? How do you see us coming to some sort of agreement around that, or do you think we can? Oh, that's a difficult question. So we have democratic systems that end up uh, ruling our countries and uh, making decisions about what what laws we should implement. I think we should use a procedure or system similar to that to decide what the AI does. So, you know, have a system with voting and have representatives. And from that slow process, we may get uh, a type of document that we can all agree upon what, what the AI should do and how it should be used. But, but, but to be honest, all of this to me seems like a problem for the future. Because right now we're actually racing towards uh, disaster and the only sensible thing is to just mash the brakes as soon as possible, get our politicians to listen to the scientists, get them to stop, pause, pause, it, pause it all, and then we can start to discuss what to do after the pause. And this is something I mentioned before, and it came up at an event that I was at not too long ago. And... What was quite interesting is one of the speakers that was on, her name was Suki, and Suki was talking about this, and, and she acknowledged the AI question, uh, sorry, the ethics question. And what I thought was interesting is her idea was to approach it from a human rights perspective to begin with, because there is international agreement on human rights. And that's one of the places that nearly every country, I think, or every country has signed up to the sort of, you know, the global human rights legislation. And so her idea was maybe start there and then try and build out because it's great. And you say, you know, we, you know, we have a democratic view of that. Well, there's a lot of people who don't agree with the democratic view either. Uh, and they're not democracies and, and, you know, they would be perfectly happy to run everything in their own way and, and not have a democracy at all. So again, that, you know, it bleeds into we're not always dealing with people who think the same as a sort of liberal Western European, you know, sort of capitalist worldview. And I think that's where a lot of the, the you know, the, the, the complexity is going to come from. I do agree. I think we could set some really basic rules on a human rights level. And then, but I do think we're going to end up with multiple versions of different controller AIs that are going to have different worldviews and different ethical standpoints. And that's where you're going to start to get competition. So what did you mean about having these multiple controller AIs? Yeah, sorry. It's not something um, we've talked about yet. So I saw Sam Altman when he was here and, and he was speaking. And one of the things that he talked about when he was here was the fact that 
his vision is he sort of sees the way the AI is probably going to develop and, and an, any sort of an AGI is, is that that general AI is actually just going to be a controlling unit. It's not going to do everything itself. It will go out to all those narrow AI tools to go and do particular tasks. So you'll have an AI that you'll talk to and you'll say, I want to play chess. And it'll go, okay, great. And it'll go away to a chess AI and it will use an API or whatever to talk to that. And it will use that to play chess with you. Or if you have a mass question, it will go to Wolfram Alpha. Or you know, if you, if you need an image created, it'll go to Midjourney or something similar. So it uses a federated model. So it will only go to the different places to do the specific task that you need done. It's, it's really interesting that, that Sam Altman uh, shared that view publicly because um, at that point in time, the public didn't know about how GPT-4 was created, like their state-of-the-art model. Like in a leak, I think two weeks ago, it appears that GPT-4 is also some sort of hybrid model that consists of smaller models. A couple of weeks before that, we had Hugging GPT, like an AI from Hugging Face, which was able to use other AIs as well. So I think... I think Sam is probably right in, in that regard. That we'll not have like one big neural network that can do everything, but we'll have a bunch of networks that are working together and that will be like the super intelligent thing, right? It's going to be some sort of complex hybrid monster. Exactly. And the advantage to that though, is that you can have a load of specialists, like you can have a specialist AI that does maths, for example. And that's like a, that's a hard science. There's not really much disagreement that, Although there is some uh, that two plus two equals four, so societally and and you know, but the math doesn't depend on your worldview, right? So any any country can go off and ask for an equation to be done, and it will come back with it with an answer. You know, anybody can ask to play chess, and and you'll get the same answer. So everybody would be happy, and what we'd end up with is we'd end up with some universal tools that would do those sorts of tasks. But it's that layer that sits on top. That's where you would put your bias in or try and remove bias, or that's where you can put your particular ethical worldview in as opposed to someone else, right? So the, I know I keep saying sort of, you know, the, the liberal European Western kind of view is different than say the Middle Eastern view, which is different than particularly the Russian view or the Chinese view, which is different than the Japanese view, which is different than the, you know, Bolivian view. And so, you know, South America has its own culture. It has its own set of views, its own ways of thinking about things. So it might want to have an AI that looks at it in one way. 100% we will end up with a Sharia version of an AI so that it will work towards, you know, there's, there's a quarter of the world pretty much believes in Sharia law as well. So, you know, there will be an AI that will that will work within the confines of that as opposed to the you know, sort of our Western views or the American view, you know, the, just because Europe and America have very different, I have one foot in each place. And so, you know, I'm, I'm acutely aware that there are very differing views on how things should work and, and that sort of thing. So sorry, I feel like I'm talking a lot, but that was, that's where I think that the ethics piece comes into it. Mm -hmm. And that's where you're going to start to get competition. So I, I think that uh, having multiple AIs is a temporary state. So right now we have like a lot of competing AIs and they all you know, work differently and have their own biases and maybe their own cultures and their own ethical ways of doing things. But once we get an AI, like one single AI that is smart enough to hack into all other computers, once it like reaches that capability threshold, um, at some point it will. Either someone malicious will use it, someone will accidentally use it, but it's like it's like leaving a bag full of cash at Times Square. I'm not entirely sure who's going to pick it up and who's going to walk away with the money or whether all those people are going to rip it out of the bag, but I know it's an unstable system. And having a super intelligent system that is smart enough to take over all computers, to hack into all machines, that is also a very unstable system. So I think it's very unlikely that we'll have multiple super intelligent systems. It's probably going to be one super intelligent system. And once it takes hold, it will understand that in order to achieve its goal, it needs to prevent other super intelligence from emerging. And it will probably 
pretty easy. It will be pretty easy for to do that for a super intelligent, like write a couple of viruses, hack into computers, that type of stuff. My cabin in the woods is looking better every day. <laughs> so, <laughs> Which... To be honest, I don't think <laughs> if, if a true super intelligence is going to optimize that you'll be safe in a cabin or in a bunker or wherever, because at some point it will try to, you know, get solar energy or whatever, and what may want to use your cabin in the woods for creating processors or something like that. Uh, and, and ultimately it's, it, it's, it's like competing. It's, it's say you're a chimpanzee and you're competing against humans. You live in a forest somewhere and you think everything's good, but there's this smarter species. And at some point, the smarter species has some use for your living space. So for example, we use palm oil in our shampoo. So at some point people are going to get bulldozers and destroy rainforest. The monkey has no idea why there's a bulldozer and why it's destroying his home. But yeah, we want to have shampoo. I think for a similar reason, a super intelligent AI will just remove your house from the woods and turn it into uh, processors or solar panels or whatever, because it can just use it for something else. Probably something stupid like calculating pi or something accidental. Yeah, it will, it will, it will certainly be something accidental and it will be something that someone never considered. I'll guarantee you that because humans are very bad at at considering all the variables and and you know the unintended consequences of things that we do. Yeah, especially if you start looking at like the singularity, like this moment where change is happening so fast. For example, if you build a super intelligence, when that happens, you're definitely inside a super a singularity. It's just it's just dark behind it. You have no idea what the end state will be, uh, but there are some things that you can predict about that state. And one of them is that the, the smartest thing wins. So in the universe, it's basically the thing that is the best at achieving its goals is the thing that controls the universe. And right now for Earth, that's humans. Uh, but if we build something that's better at that thing, then that thing will control the universe. I like your chimpanzee example, actually. That's one of the best examples I've heard so far. So congratulations on that. Uh, I don't think I, I came up with it, though. I'm pretty sure no. it's like a common example. I stole it, it from someone be. else. Yeah, it might be. Just claim it. It's okay. No one knows. Um, but thinking about that, so that, that, that then makes me think, do you have an example of where AI has already started to do something like that, that where it's crossed the line already? Well, there are definitely examples of AIs causing harm. So you, you mentioned bias earlier. A lot of AIs are harming people with bias every single day. Like we, we shouldn't forget that all social media feeds are basically some sort of biased feeds that are preying on us to get as much attention and you know take, make us look at advertisements for as long as possible. These, these are also harmful examples of AI. And Right now, people are building drones. Like people are actually building suicide drones that can, you know, fly towards people and then just blow up in their face and then they kill them. That's that type of stuff is also happening right now. We're already living in in in, in a Black Mirror episode. It's crazy. But there there are no examples of a rogue AI. And what really sucks is that there probably never will be until it's too late. So if you have an AI that's smart enough to go a little rogue and hack into a couple of other computers, it will be probably smart enough to hack into all computers, right? And it, and it just, AIs work at so incredibly high speeds. We humans are like, we're like frozen in time compared to that, that machine. We, don't, we wouldn't stand a chance. So, so typically with governance, we see something and then we act. So with cars, for example, we invented cars, hundred years ago, and then we invented real, uh, like, like, like uh, highways, and then cars started crashing, and then people invented uh, safety uh, seatbelts. And then people started to make these seatbelts compulsory and uh, get it, giving people's fines if you didn't wear them. Uh, but that takes a long time, and the way we, we do governance is pretty much always reactive. And we're seeing the same thing now with AI. People are now talking about like the bias harms that AI has been doing for years, but with AI safety, with an AI takeover risk, with the existential and catastrophic risks that super intelligent AI poses, we will never have the opportunity to see it go wrong before it's too late. So we need to act, we, we need to act preventatively. And 
I just watched Oppenheimer. I think most people listening will also have watched Oppenheimer. So did you, I think, David? My wife and son went to go see it when I was on a, I was out of town on business. So I haven't had a chance to see it yet. Oh man, I, I don't want to spoil things for you. <laughs> go ahead, I don't mind. It's fine. I, I know what happened. <laughs> you know what happened. Yeah, exactly. Oh man, I forgot the point I was going to make about the movie. <laughs> Embarrassing. I know um, a lot of people have been comparing it, saying that, you know, this is the Oppenheimer moment for AI and that we are on the cusp of the same type of situation. And, you know, we are opening a whole can of worms that, yes. it, you know, that, that is, that are going to cause a lot of trouble. And I totally get that. Because there's, there's like a lot of interesting analogies to be made, like with the Oppenheimer movie and AI. So, so one of them is basically like the character of Oppenheimer himself and basically, basically these AI lab people who are building the super intelligence and are also have to consider the fact that they may, may actually kill everyone on earth and do something horrible. Um, and we also have the, the, the thing that I wanted to refer to, <laughs> uh, to, to before was that they needed to drop the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki to show people that it's real. That's, at least that's the argument that's being made in, in the movie, right? So yeah. we, we, couldn't, we can't just tell people, hey, there's an atomic bomb and we have it. And it's very, very explosive. People need to see it to fear it. And with AI, we also need people to see it to fear it, but people can't see it because when people are able to see it, it's too late. So that's another analogy. No, it's very interesting. And this is getting into the existential risk part of the discussion that, I, that, that we definitely want to have. But there's actually a third analogy. Uh, yeah, go on. An interesting one. So in the movie, so this is maybe a spoiler that, that you've already heard, but scientists are talking about a chance that if you start the first fission reaction, that that reaction will cascade and, you know, all the nitrogen atoms in the atmosphere will also uh, cause, uh, cause a fusion reaction and that will lead to the end of the world, right? So like one, you, 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 Say you set one nuke on and it blows up the entire atmosphere and everybody dies. There was a chance that this could happen. So they took a bunch of scientists and made the calculations. And after the, these calculations were made, they were pretty sure that this is, this is like impossible. It was 0% chance. It was just impossible. I thought it was um, one. Wasn't it like 1% or something? It's or way it lower. Point one. So some people have said it was like a millionth of a percent, but it's actually oh, like right. okay. they made a lot of assumptions to even get it to that it's even remotely possible, but it was just not possible. But with AI, the scientists are actually, on average, AI researchers on average think there's a 14% chance of horrible outcomes. And AI safety researchers who are specialized in this have a 30% horrible outcome estimate. So like if you pull the, like the, the amount of drama about the 0.000001% in Oppenheimer versus the, the lack of drama about the 14 or 30% risk that we're currently facing with AI, to me, it just, it, it, it shows how, how bad we are at taking this topic sufficiently seriously. It's just such a huge topic. It's so inconceivably large that, you know, people just dismiss it instantly. It's instantly sci-fi. It's just bullshit. It's a conspiracy. It's just, it's just fake. But, but taking it seriously is really, really difficult. It, I think part of the heart of the issue now, I don't know if it's now, but the way I see it is we've got two factors. One is we've got, and I should probably say, I've spent the last 25 years of my life working in startups and mainly tech startups that deal with data. So I, ha I have a fairly good grasp of the, the data and, you know, machine learning has been used for decades, 20, 30 years. And really most of the AI is just really advanced machine learning at the end of the day that will switch over at some point, but at the minute it's still, it, it's just basic math, really statistical analysis, although it runs at a very high level, I, I will accept that. But what we've got is, I, I think the difference between now and then is we've we've got into this world where startups are you know startups happen so quickly we've got all the i'm going to say this and people are going to probably yell at me but you know it's the tech bro problem it's you've got a bunch of people who are really smart with great ideas and there's no barrier to entry 
So anybody can build anything. It doesn't cost you anything to set up a company. I can set up 10 companies in a week if I want to for doing 10 different apps or 10 different ideas. And it literally doesn't, you know, the, the, the cost of doing that is, is nearly zero. And so we get a bunch of people running headlong into all sorts of different solutions, but they don't know anything about the problem and they don't understand the reasons. I, we see this a lot in smart city solutions where people come out and they start, you know, building traffic monitoring solutions or they start saying, oh, well, we can do this and that. Waze, Waze is the perfect example. On the surface, Waze seemed like a great idea. It's like, oh, there's traffic. We'll just give you a way to sort of sneak around the traffic. But the unintended consequence of that was you now started routing hundreds and thousands of cars down residential streets that were never designed to carry that much load. And the tech bros would say, oh, yeah, but it's just, it's a street and, you know, it's okay. And it, it doesn't make any difference. You know, it's just a few more cars going down there. But it now means kids can't ride outside because it's too dangerous for them to ride their bikes and everything. But, but more importantly, the thing that, that wasn't factored in was the fact that the road surface and the engineering of the road was never designed for that volume of traffic. So now what you have is you have neighborhood streets that are getting way more traffic than they should have, which means you now get a lot more potholes. It's actually, you know, it's wearing out the roads faster and all this stuff. So you have these unintended consequences that now governments having to go in and put in low traffic neighborhoods to stop all the traffic because it's actually damaging the infrastructure. And it was, it was just a bunch of tech guys who had a seemingly good idea, but they had no idea of the reasons why, you know, traffic didn't go down those roads and it wasn't, that wasn't sort of encouraged already. So that's one thing you've got the tech bro bit going on. The second thing I think that you have is we've got the dual use problem, right? So everything like you're approaching it from, yes, everything's, you know, can go bad. You've got a whole other set and they're still, they're, they're largely the same group of people that in sort of, you know, the tech centers, and, and I'm not just picking on Silicon Valley, it's around the world. I've, I've worked with people from all over the place and I'm, I'm one of them. So you know, I, I, I do have a glass half full sort of view about things generally, but they just over rotate and, and generally focus on only on the positives. So they're like, yeah, yeah, it, there might be some risk down the road if this thing, if it gets out someday in the future, that might happen. But in the meantime, Hey, look, we can diagnose cancer yeah, yeah, faster yeah. and Hey, look, we can, we can make vaccines faster and Hey, we can do this stuff faster. But you know, if you watch the Netflix show, Unknown Killer Robots, you can see that, yeah, they can make new drugs faster, but they can also make drugs that kill us faster. There's a lot of psychological processes here that, that I think get people to not think about the harmful consequences of what they're doing. So many, many tech bros, and I think myself included, are very optimistic people. There's this book from Daniel Kahneman called Thinking Fast and Slow. And, and there's a chapter about uh, the optimism bias. It's basically a cognitive bias that makes you more optimistic. And it also causes people to be a little happier. And it also causes people to become more entrepreneurial. So most entrepreneurs, most tech bros will be like this, very optimistic. But optimism also blinds you of negative things. And I think this is a, this is a very, very large problem if you're talking about a technology with the potential of a super intelligence, right? Because it, these, these things are... Like the, the, the most powerful technology that we've ever built, we haven't, uh, will be a, a super intelligence. And yeah, we, we need to understand that these actors are not malicious. They're just a little biased. We're all a little biased. And these biases are the things that can blind us from risks. And with, with AI existential risk, uh, I think this is particularly a, a very dark and important problem. So the, the, the topic itself is... You know, it, it, it just got not ridiculous. If we would have this talk like four months ago, people would consider me four times as crazy as they now consider me probably. <laughs> Many people will still consider me crazy, but... Maybe twice. <laughs> yeah, maybe twice as, as crazy. <laughs> so so there's like this psychological problem where uh, the, the, the topic is being ridiculed. Uh, but we also have the problem is that if you tell people that they might die, that people don't want to accept that. 
It also happens when people are diagnosed with you know, a terminal disease. Uh, there's a lot of denial often when people hear this type of stuff. And it's just because internalizing negative news is difficult for the brain. And this is especially so if you are the cause of this negative news. So for AI scientists and AI companies, actually internalizing that the thing that you are doing could kill everyone is exceptionally difficult. And you can hear like the three Turing Award winners for AI, Joshua Bengio, Geoffrey Hinton, and Jan LeCun. Two of them, two out of three, are basically saying, oh my God, I regret my entire career because this thing could kill anyone. And it, you know, it, it keeps me up at night. Uh, that's, that's a huge emotional toll. And I think it's actually fascinating that even though this bias exists, like that, that steers people away from taking these risks seriously, still like AI researchers on average give bad outcomes 14%. So that, that shows us that the problem is, is probably like a lot bigger than that. Yep. And I want to talk about existential risks specifically here in just a second. So having worked in startups and stuff like that, like you have to be overly positive and overly optimistic every single day when you come to work. You've got your own company, you know, aside from this, I've worked in startups, I've had my own companies in the past. It takes a huge amount of positivity to, to some days to get out of bed and to come in because you have to believe that what you're doing is right. Sometimes if somebody asks you to reflect for a couple of hours on what you're actually doing and can you come up with some negatives and do you think there's a chance that it's going to go horribly wrong, I do believe that you can honestly appraise that and think, yeah, you know, if this, if there are places where this could go wrong, but I can't think about that in my daily, you know, in, in all these little decisions that I make in every single meeting and people are chasing me and we've got investors and we've got, you know, all these people and we've got press coming out and we've got all this stuff. And I guess I'm trying to give them a little bit of a, the benefit of the doubt because I understand it. And I think you understand it as well, but there is this sort of concept of the existential risk. And I'd like to touch on that in a little bit more detail and Maybe if you can explain what you mean when you say existential risk, we can start there. I think existential risk is sometimes defined in really complex ways, but to me, it's just uh, the end of human existence. We don't exist anymore. We're all dead. That's, that's, that's an existential risk for me. There's also catastrophic risks. Like if we have nuclear war and some people will survive, like 99% dies and 1% lives, some would say that's not an existential risk, but it's just a catastrophic risk. Uh, yeah, to me, you know, both are like insanely horrible and we should do everything to prevent them. Yeah. The, sort of the, the textbook definition of that means that you're, it's the risk of wiping everyone out. Yeah. Yeah. Is that right? Exactly that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, it's, yeah, it's, it's one of the, it's one of the, like the arguments that AI skeptics use that the, the existential risk argument is so big and powerful that it just takes out all the air of the room and we, we can't, you know, discuss other types of risks anymore from AI. And, you know, I, I, I get that, I get that sentiment, but I also don't think it's entirely right to think that because if existential risk were like a very, very, very small risk, like there's a 0.001% chance of blowing up the earth, like an Oppenheimer type of chance, then indeed it, it would be it would be a Pascal's mugging, uh, as some would call it, like uh, hypothetical, there's a very small chance and that's, you know, even with very bad out outcomes that you should actually ignore it. But with existential risk from AI, the chances are actually pretty big. Some experts are even saying there's an over 90% chance that this is going to wipe out everyone if you build it. So I feel like it, it doesn't, it's not currently the thing that's distracting us. And I think pausing AI, slowing down development, preventing these large language models from becoming more powerful also prevents a lot of other harms. So people losing their jobs, artists not being able to, you know, get a sense of pride from their work because AI generated art is, you know, taking the world by storm. Various domains can re-benefit from pausing AI. It's not just the fact that it will literally save everyone on earth. We got all these other benefits as well. I, I find it a little bit sad that right now there's like this 
fight going on between AI ethics and AI safety, especially people from AI ethics are being really, really dismissive of existential risk because they feel that the whole AI X risk discussion uh, is not leaving any room for AI ethics. I think we shouldn't have like that divide. Uh, we should just focus on making good governance and slowing this, this beast down as fast as possible. How do you think the media has had an impact on the existential risk discussion? Do you think it's helped or hindered? So there's a couple of media parts that helped and some that made it worse. So for example, science fiction movies uh, that, you know, there's a couple of science fiction movies that are about AIs causing massive, uh, massive horrible outcomes like Terminator, iRobot, uh, uh, Ex Machina. But, but I think these movies are really bad at conveying a realistic AI takeover scenario. They are optimized for being fun stories to watch. They're interesting to watch, but they're not necessarily a realistic depiction of how it could go wrong. And people want to watch movies with happy endings. And most of these AI movies with like a takeover scenario end in happy endings. Also, we tend to anthropomorphize these AIs way too much. So for example, in iRobot, you have robots saying, what am I? And in Ex Machina, we have this, this, this artificial intelligence going outside and touching grass and looking up at the sky, wondering about the world. These are not the type of AIs that scientists are warning about. These are yeah. not the risks. Yeah. The risks is just something that's very smart, not necessarily something that's very, very human, that is like in a robot body. So I think uh, the, the science fiction movies have done a disservice to preparing people for the actual risks of AI. And then there's the, the media talking about AI existential risk. And obviously, the fact that Geoffrey Hinton quit and that the pause letter was featured in all these newspapers that got people talking all over the world. So that has been very beneficial. The, the letter from Safe AI, the Center for AI Safety, with like the, the statement signed by like thousands or hundreds of, of scientists over the world about that AI is an existential uh, threat, also did a, made a huge impact in the media. But right now there are also conspiracy views being shared in the media, basically saying that the whole X-risk thing is just something that is constructed by AI companies to convince people that their product is really effective or to do regulatory capture. But if you look at the history, you can see that, but yeah, the, A the AI companies aren't the ones who are pushing this, this narrative. It's uh, scientists, it's NGOs. And these companies, all they did was sign a statement while they have been dismissive about the risks for like four years. So for example, during uh, a hearing of Sam Altman in March, I think, Senator Blumenthal asked him, what is your largest nightmare? Because in your blog, you wrote about AI killing everyone. And Sam Altman answers this question by talking about jobs, right? He's only talking about jobs. He's completely evading the topic of existential risk. And during that Senate hearing, there was no further, uh, or maybe oh, there was one question, but almost no mentioning of the existential risk. Now, like two months later, uh, there was another senator, uh, there was another hearing, and now Senator Blumenthal is talking about existential risk the whole time. People are taking it seriously. So there is a really, really serious shift going on, and people are starting to take this problem seriously. However, if you look at the, the, the current climate in the media, it's still focused a lot on what I would say, uh, having your cake and eat it too. Like people are thinking we can still have AI, but we just, you know, we need some guardrails to make it safe and then we'll all live happily ever after. But that narrative is dangerous because these guardrails are not sufficient. There are many, many uh, scientists who are warning against these type of guardrails. Like, of course, it's better to have some guardrails than none. But the thing is, we just shouldn't build this technology. And this is the thing that's still missing in the media. People are not sufficiently talking about slowing down, not building the technology, pausing AI training runs. Uh, it's, it's the obvious solution, but the ones who are currently in the lead, AI companies, nation states, they also have strong incentives to accelerate, right? These companies, they want to maximize their profits. Com uh, countries, they want to, you know, maybe have AI weapons and they have, want to have the economic gains. And ultimately, it's like the regular people who should go to the streets, go to protests, be vocal about slowing down, because it's ultimately everybody's single life is being risked. Right now, I think most of us will have a chance of like 30% of dying by AI. It's, that's a larger risk than dying by heart disease or cancer. 
it's it's absolutely insane that this type of risk is now you know laying upon us. It's interesting that you mentioned Sam Altman as well because I saw him when he was in London, and I think some of your guys were outside actually as uh, as yeah, I was walking yeah. in. But what I found really interesting, and I've I've said this on the podcast before, but what yeah what I found the most interesting is that he was on a world tour going around to 22 governments talking about, oh, we need to have regulation and, you know, we need to be careful. But when he spoke to the audience at UCL, he didn't mention that once. What he talked about was the economic opportunity that comes from using AI. Because at the end of the day, he's not a scientist, he's a VC. And he's a, mm, he's yeah, a business yeah. guy, not a science guy. And I just found that particularly interesting that the the message was so different than what was being portrayed on TV versus what he was actually saying to people in person. And um, I don't know if you've heard this view as well, but another view of it that I heard, which is probably the the single most cynical view I've heard of the whole situation, is that the AI companies or, or business has learned from experience in the past with stuff like Napster where the music industry just buried its head and said, we're not going to deal with it. It's nothing to do with us. Government will sort it out. And they just literally got taken to the cleaners. I think the cynical view is, is that all of the AI companies are getting involved with this regulatory discussion for two reasons. One, they can steer the regulations so they can try and have some influence over how restrictive or not those are and and the language around it. And I think the other one is, which is the really cynical part, which is that they know they can slow the process down by getting involved and dragging it out even longer. So it will mean that they can operate and do whatever they want for a longer period of time while the negotiations are going on around, <laughs> around the regulations. And I was like, someone said that to me and I was like, wow, that's like the most cynical take I've heard out of the whole thing. And it's probably about 90% correct. <laughs> I th there's, there's definitely a chance that, that, that they're going to, you know, utilize this advantage of just slowing down regulation. I mean, I know that there are specific types of regulation that they like and other types of regulation that they don't like. If you're a big AI player, you want to minimize the amount of competitors. You want to minimize the amount of open source models that are very competent. So you're going to do everything to like minimize these risks. However, I also, I'm also absolutely convinced that Sam Altman, for example, is actually scared of AI killing everyone on earth. Like he wrote in his blog, like in 2015, very explicitly about why uh, a super intelligence could wipe out humanity. And he, he's, he said it multiple times that the reason he started OpenAI was to make sure that super intelligence will not uh, uh, kill all humans on earth. And he was like talking with uh, with a lot of uh, people who, who you know were also in this AI safety uh, space uh, before. And the, the the thing that I I I'm pretty much convinced that Sam Altman actually believes that the approach that he's here having right now is the, you know the safest way of trying to accelerate and trying to you know keep your cards close and get be the first one to achieve AGI and then you can take over the world, right? But I don't think he will succeed. I think that if he builds a super intelligence, that he will not be able to control it. And that, you know, it's just everybody dies. And that's maybe, that's maybe an even more cynical view that the, 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 the logical, most likely outcome out of all of this is that we're all just racing to our own demise. And I think, I think Sam Altman is also a little scared of this as well. I think he'd rather be on the, it's sort of like what I said to my son and when he was thinking about what career path he might want to do and what he might want to study at university. And before all of this started to happen earlier this year, my advice to him was to, cause he was thinking more about robotics and that kind of thing. And I said, look, if, you know, if I were you, I would be, I would get into engineering and being one of the people that works on robots, either the software side or, you know, the hardware side or whatever. And I said, because if we're going to have robot overlords, I want to be on the side of the people that create the robots as opposed to the side of the people that have to deal with them on the other end. 
And <laughs> uh, I suspect there's a certain amount of Sam Altman feeling the same. It's like, I'd rather be the creator of the AI than the person who has to deal with it on the other end. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, and, and, and I apologize to Sam, and if he wants to take exception with me, I'm more than happy to have him on the podcast, and, and, and he can berate me publicly. Okay, I'm, I'm, I am conscious of time now. We're over an hour already and that went really really quickly but i still have a couple things that i do want to touch on so going back just to to obviously to the pause ai movement how how many people do you you know how many people are you at the minute where where are you involved and you know if we've got listeners out there who agree with you and and you know also have this existential dread that you know the world's going to end and you know if they want to get involved where do they go who do they talk to you know uh, are there local groups around that they can find? How how, how does that work? So we have uh, we have a Discord server. That's that's basically the main place where people uh, talk strategy and, and get together and you know organize protests and the like. Currently, there are I think four hundred forty people in the in the Discord server. It's growing quite rapidly, uh, given that we're just you know two three months old. And and the the, the main thing that we try to do is to sway public opinion, reach out to politicians and organize protests. And these protests are, you know, not that big yet, but I think that when more people start to, you know, realize uh, that the, the risk we're facing uh, and, and the lack of action by our leaders right now, that people will also start feeling like a little bit of anger and a little bit of fear. And these emotions are really essential in, in getting in action. Because as long as, you know, AI threat is like this hypothetical, technical, abstract, rational risk thing, you don't really feel it. Like it, it took me six years to actually feel it, right? So I like three months ago when I think, think when I read Eliezer Yudkowsky's piece in time, that's perhaps one of the first times that I actually cried about AI risk. I mean, I read other work of him before and he's like often writing really these rational arguments about why machines can take over and, and the like. But this time, I just read emotions. I just read fear. I read anger. I read a little bit of hopelessness. And that was the thing that actually triggered uh, me, like that feeling of, oh my God, this is actually real. I have to readjust my own future. You know, I have to basically start coping with the, 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 the fact that there's a large chance that I could die, my girlfriend could die, all the people I know and love, all the people in the world, and everybody dies. There's a real chance that it happens. It's like a cancer diagnosis, but for everyone that you know and who has ever lived, it's, it's such a huge thing to emotionally deal with. And that's, you know, that it, it takes time for, for something like that to actually uh, sink in. And that's the thing that, that scares me a little about if we can slow this thing down, if we can actually pause. Because if people like me take years before coming up with like a real emotional response, like an adult emotional response, uh, an appropriate one to the situation, then we'll be too late. If everybody is as slow as me, we'll be too late. So I really hope that other people are, you know, are, are quicker to adjust their views and uh, uh, take this thing seriously and, and feel that this is a real threat. Yep. And it, I don't have existential dread like you do yet, but it is why I started the podcast. You know, I, I, I work in a, in a co-working space with loads of other creative people and it was a topic of discussion. And it, it started off as, oh yeah, have you seen this tool? It's, you know, kind of interesting and it does some cool stuff, but it's not really that good to, I've lost customers now because they don't need me. You know, they can use AI to, to do what I'm doing to somebody else who lost all of like a hundred percent of their business. It wasn't a massive business, but again, it was still a, a nice steady revenue stream for them. So I do understand it on one level and, you know, hopefully I, I guess it should, you know, hopefully it won't take me that long to to come around. You didn't meet her. I had in the very beginning when I was doing the podcast, I had a co-host named Didi and, and Didi was, was sort of the glass half empty to my glass half full. And, and, you know, she, she shares a lot of the, a lot of your views 
about how this is going to go. If she was here, I think what she would say is, is it the way she sees it is it's not just AI itself, but it's also the, the sociopolitical landscape that goes along with that. And, and what she thinks is, and again, I'm, I'm putting words in her mouth, but I think I know what she would say, is that it's not the AI specifically that's actually going to kill us. It's the, it's the people in the middle, in the adjustment period, because there's going to be a lot of adjustment. And that's the hugely risky period almost. So I think there's different levels to it. And I, I think we have the opportunity to, to wipe ourselves out at, for all sorts of reasons. I mean, I grew up in the 80s when, you know, we were worried about the Cold War and, and having nuclear bombs and, you know, a nuclear war wiping out the planet, which is still there. And, and, and it's still a risk. But um, I'd like to, yeah, we, we could dive a little further in, in, in that because, I mean, One thing about AI risks isn't they that that they are so incredibly diverse. There are just so many ways that this can go wrong, and also a lot of ways that are taken really seriously by experts. So you mentioned nuclear, for example. Well, an AI may be able to hack into a command center, and you know just just show a couple of dots on a screen, and that could lead people to believe they're being attacked by nuclear missiles, and they need to respond to that. You know, it could trigger a nuclear war. Uh, an AI may be able to synthesize a new type of virus that you know takes the virality of something like COVID and makes it even more viral and makes it more lethal, makes it more immune resistant. So that's like a second way it can go wrong. Uh, you, you, it could massively hack into all systems that could lead to societal collapse because if we, we talked about this before, but if if the internet no longer works, if all devices on earth are hacked in some way, You know, I think there's a lot of damage uh, that will that will be caused by that. I think many, I think billions could lose their lives as a consequence of something like that. Uh, so th there's a lot of these AI risks. All of them sound pretty extreme, maybe pretty sci-fi to many people. But the thing is that intelligence is a dangerous characteristic. If something is very, very smart, way smarter than people, there is just almost an infinite way of things that can go wrong. The only thing that I can kind of guarantee is that there's a very large chance that it will go wrong. If you want to view it in that way, AI, a lot of people are saying now already that AI is just like another person in your office. And, you know, it has the same foibles that, that people have. You know, it's not always correct, but neither is the guy sitting next to you in your office. It, it's biased. Well, so is the person sitting next to you in their office. You know, it, it takes content from other people and reuses it. Well, guess what? Everyone in an office does that. You know, it it copies artists' works. Well, guess what? Every artist in the world learned to become an artist by copying other people's art, which which is part of the reason why I I, I struggle internally because I am, and a lot of times people say, "Oh, well, it's done this thing and it's biased," and I go, "Yeah, but everybody's biased. You know, every single yeah, human yeah, yeah. is biased. It's no different." I think that no, we, we, in a way, we have like higher expectations. Hundred percent computers. Yeah of being yeah. completely accurate and doing the right thing. Yeah. Uh, but yet, I mean, there's a lot of analogies between humans and AIs, but I think there's also a lot of ways in which AIs are like dangerously superior. So I mentioned speed before, AIs can think way faster. AIs can clone themselves to other machines and like delegate work to other instances of itself. Humans can do that. An AI can tweak inside his own brain. Humans can do that. An AI doesn't is not linked to one location. It could just move to a different computer somewhere else. Humans can do that. An AI can like add new types of senses to itself, like totally different types of, of senses. Like it could use all the webcams in the world as its eyes. It could manipulate all humans in the world to function as its limbs, right? Getting people to do what you want is often like a matter of doing a bank transfer or threatening them or maybe charming them. I'm not sure what type of strategy an AI will use, but It will be able to convince people to do things. So like, it feels like this is an organism that is in some ways very similar to humans, but in many ways, it's like vastly, vastly superior and we should not think about them too lightly. I think scale is the, is the other thing, right? Like, I understand the, the bias point is one. And you can say, well, yeah, an AI is biased, but so are humans. And you say, yes, but me as an individual, I'm biased, but... I only have an impact on the people that I see in my immediate vicinity. I don't really have 
an impact potentially on the whole planet, whereas the, the AI could have that scale. And so when you start to then, you know, each individual person, whatever we do, doesn't really have that much of an impact. You know, I, you could get into chaos theory, I guess, but, you know, something I do here, you know, when I, when I go home today, you know, some decision I make on the road doesn't affect anyone in India, whereas something in, you know, a decision that a, an AI makes may have global implications. And I think, you know, that's, that's kind of where that might come, where that might come from or come to the fore. Yeah, definitely. So what's the message that you would send? If you could send a message to all the governments in the world and all the big corporations, let's pretend that they all love my podcast and that they're all listening right now. And uh, what, what, what would you say to them? The default outcome of building a super intelligent AI is that everybody dies. We need global governance to prevent such an AI from ever being created. Thanks for coming on. Um, you're welcome to come on anytime. So I'm assuming that at some point in the next X number of months, something major is going to happen. And, uh, and if, if you want to come on and if you want to come on and rant, you've, uh, the, the door is always open and, uh, and you can give me a call and just say, just call me up and say, Dave, man, just fire up a studio. We, I just need to rant and then I'll, uh, I'll just, oh man, that sounds, that sounds like a lot I'll of fun. I'll fire it up and let you go. <laughs> Maybe you can turn the rant into a real conversation. That's uh, yeah, but that sounds, that sounds a lot, lot, like a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Okay, folks, that's a wrap on another amazing episode of Creatives with AI. Thanks so much for joining us today. We really hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. If you want to stay up to date on how all things related to AI is impacting the creative industries, then be sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever your favorite platform is. We're on them all. And follow us on social media. We're on mainly Twitter and LinkedIn, but we're the same handle everywhere, which is at Creatives with AI. We'd also really appreciate it if you could just take a minute to leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Those are our two main platforms and it really helps other listeners find the show and it also helps us get more popularity and more exposure. So it'd be amazing if you could help us with that. If you've got any questions, topic suggestions, guest recommendations, feel free to send us an email. The best email is hello at creativeswith.ai. Or you can shoot us a message on social media. Either one is fine. We love hearing from all of you and we can't wait to bring more exciting episodes in the future. And the best way we can do that is to get feedback from the audience and have the audience tell us who it is you'd like to hear from and what things you'd like us to ask and what topics you'd like us to talk about. So please use that. Let us know what you want to hear and we'll do our best to get it for you. And last but not least, we'd like to give a shout out to our sponsor, Future Hand Limited, who make this podcast possible. Your support means the world to us and we really appreciate it. So thanks very much. That's it for today. So until next time, take care, everybody, and stay curious.